Lifestyle, the way in which we live our lives. It's something formed throughout a series of decisions, whether intentional or accidental. But if our lives are to reflect the lifestyle of Jesus, it should be built with care. And as we allow God himself to form what he will in us and through us and around us, our lives are soon collected in a beautiful compilation for God's glory and for our good. Welcome to the weekend, everybody. And uh, I have a question I want to start with, and the question is simply this. What do you demand? What do you expect from your kids, from your employees, from your athletes, from your spouse, from your friends, from your church, from yourself? Do you expect 100%? Do you demand 100%? Or are you good with, let's say, 99.9%? I think there are a lot of us out there, if we were honest, we would be thrilled. We'd do a happy dance if we could get 99.9% out of our kids, our students, our spouse, our friends, our athletes, whoever it is. I mean, that would be a huge improvement. But I want you to think about this. Is 99.9% really, really what you want? Take, for instance, if, let's say, we're satisfied with 99.9%, That means, and get this, it means that 22,000 checks in the next 60 minutes, in the next one hour, are going to be withdrawn on the wrong bank accounts. It means that 20 million documents will be lost by the IRS in this tax season. It means that there will be 20,000 medical prescriptions that will not be properly filled out and will not be given out to the people that they should go to. You may end up getting somebody else's prescription, labels might be confused, and you may be popping the wrong pills. It means that 12 babies today will be given to the wrong parents. Now, let me ask you a question. How comfortable are you with 99.9%? Hey, if it's your bank account that's being drawn down, if it's uh, your baby or grandbaby that's being given to the wrong person, and if your documents that are being lost or you're taking the wrong pills, wow, you want 100%. You want to know that everything is perfect. So why is it that sometimes we have a problem with God that he would demand 100%? Why is it that we think God should be willing to put up with 99.9% or even less than that? Well, we're about to find out. Welcome to this next to the last message in our grand series from Head to Lab where we've been looking at the Gospel of John and learning to love Jesus with our head, our mind, our leb, our hearts. And I hope that this series has been a blessing to you. We're going to wrap it up next weekend, so don't miss joining us next weekend. And our campuses, our venues are online. But this weekend, we're going to 
look at how Jesus wants, to live, wants us to live a holy lifestyle. And I want to make a promise to you. And the promise is simply this. That by the end of this message, if we'll take the Holy Spirit seriously, that by the end of this message, you will understand what it means to be holy and listen to this, and how to live a holy lifestyle. So let's look at our text today. John chapter 17, if you want to follow along in your own Bibles. We begin reading, and Jesus is praying here, and he says to his Father, I have given them your word. Now the them here is not just his immediate disciples. Remember from verse 20, you and I are included in this as well. He's praying for all of us. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. And then he says, make them holy. By your truth, teach them your word which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And then he says, I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. So we see at least three times in this passage that we just looked at that Jesus uses this word holy, holy, holy. There's another word that we sometimes use that you'll find in other versions of this passage of Scripture. It's not the word holy, but it's a synonym. It's the word sanctify. And the word holy or sanctify means to give something over to a specific purpose, to set it aside or set a person aside for a specific purpose, a specific reason. That's what it means to be sanctified or to be holy as we see it in this passage of Scripture. So Jesus is praying to his Father. And he's praying to his Father and he's saying, Father, my heart's desire is to hand myself over specifically to make them, that means you and me, to make us holy, to make us set apart for God's purposes, to make us set apart to be acceptable, in other words, to God. Jesus doesn't pray, Lord, help me to make them 99.9% good. He prays and says, Lord, help me to make, Father, help me to make them 100%. Help me to make them entirely sanctified or entirely holy. And all of us know that's, that's a problem for us because in and of ourselves, we are far from holy. We are far from perfect. Our kids aren't perfect, our spouse isn't perfect, our boss isn't perfect, the pastor isn't perfect, our friends aren't perfect. We aren't perfect. We know that. We see it and feel it every day. And even though we sometimes measure ourselves against others to kind of determine, you know, how good we are, the measurement you really have to take is yourself against God. And we don't come close at all. The reality is we are far from perfect. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I am setting myself aside to set them aside, to make them holy and perfect to you and for you? And, and, and you know, what is this holiness anyway? What is this being set apart anyway? Well, let's take a look at that. A couple principles. Number one, 
To be holy, H-O-L-Y, is to be holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, given completely over my whole being. To be holy is to be wholly committed to God. To be holy is to be wholly committed to God, entirely set aside for him. And Jesus says, that's what I came to do. I set myself aside for them, Father. And how did Jesus do that? He did it through his teaching, didn't he? He did it through his example, didn't he? And he did it on the cross. On the cross, Jesus literally, like a divine sponge, absorbed all our unholiness, all our sin onto himself and died the death that we should die. For the wages of sin, the consequences of being unholy is death. And what does he do? He in turn gives us this gift called eternal life. He literally imparts to us, or the theologians like to say he imputes, he puts into us through the Holy Spirit his holiness. So now God sees you and me as holy, perfect. It has nothing to do with us. It's everything that Christ has done for us. But there's still a a part that we have to play in it. And the part that we have to play in it is we have to be committed then to what he's done in our lives, wholly and entirely committed to that, to grow into it till it literally takes over our lives and we stand before God someday and we are completed as a result. Now to be wholly committed to somebody means that we have to make some choices. Uh, Bruce Baumgartner is a uh, decorated wrestler, perhaps the most decorated wrestler uh, in in American wrestling history, so to speak. He was a four times Olympic champion. And you know, a lot of times people ask these kinds of athletes, you know, how it is, besides their talent, how it is they have become so good at what they do. And I want to share with you what Bruce Baumgartner says. Listen to this. He says, I believe less in sacrifice and more in choices. Everyone has a choice. When I was trained to become an Olympic wrestler, sure, I had to sacrifice spending time with friends and family and certain gatherings, but it was always my choice. We all sacrifice potential paths for the one we create through our decisions. In one sense, many people sacrifice becoming an Olympic athlete. They don't make the necessary choices to become one. Someone said that if you want to become really proficient in something, it's going to take you at least 10,000 hours. That's like two hours a day focused and devoted to whatever it is you want to become proficient for about 13.7 years. And there are a lot of us that dream about being great, dream about becoming, you know, a super athlete or whatever it's going to be, but we don't make the choices that would get us there. There are a lot of talented people who could be really great, but they lack the desire to make the choices, the sacrifices that are needed in order to get there. You know, Jesus made some choices. It says in Philippians chapter 2, it says, though he was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He made a choice. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. 
he took the humble position of a slave. So he makes kind of like two choices. I'm going to give up my glory with my father. I'm going to take on human flesh, and, and I'm not going to come as a king. I'm going to come as a baby in a manger. I'm going to come in a very humble way. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He chose to suffer. He chose to die for you and me. So when Jesus says, I make myself sanctified, I make myself holy, what he's saying is, I'm choosing to give some things up and I'm choosing to take some things on in order to make you holy. And he expects us to do the same thing. To realize the holiness that he's placed into our lives means I have to make some choices. There are some things I have to choose to stop watching. There's some things I have to choose to stop doing. There's some attitudes I have to choose to change. And then there's some things I need to choose to start doing. There's a lifestyle I need to choose to start living by. There are things that society says regarding sexuality I've got to choose to not agree with. There are things that God says about sexuality I need to choose to embrace as a lifestyle. And, and we just you know, could go on because God has a lot to say about what we should choose and what we should not choose. And listen, you and I live in a world that is always wanting to make choices for us. And there are people all around us, especially around our kids, our students, who are trying to influence them on the choice that they should make. It reminds me of a story I heard about Ronald Reagan when he was a little boy, the former president, Ronald Reagan. His aunt took him to town, and uh, this is in the old days, and they visited a cobbler uh, to create a pair of shoes for Ronald Reagan. And the cobbler asked Reagan if he wanted square tips on his shoes or rounded tips on his shoes, and Reagan couldn't make up his mind. So the cobbler said, well, take a couple of days and then tell me. Well, a couple of days later, he happens to see Ronald Reagan in town, and he says to him, have you decided do you want square toes or rounded toes on your shoes? And Reagan still cannot decide. So the cobbler says, I'll tell you what, come next week on Thursday, I have your shoes ready for you. So Reagan came the next Thursday, saw his shoes. One had a square tip, and the other had a rounded tip. And the cobbler looked at him and said, let this be a lesson to you not to let other people make your decisions for you. Later on, when Reagan was telling this story, he quipped, if you don't make your own decisions, someone else will. And boy, is that true. And there are a whole lot of people that are trying to make decisions for you, are trying to influence you with what they think you should do and what you should stop doing and what you should start doing, and on it goes. Question is this, am I going to choose to be committed wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, to God and his truth, which Jesus keeps praying for? Or am I going to be wholly committed to this world and you cannot have your feet in one world and in the other? You can't be, on the one hand, trying to please the world, and on the other hand, trying to please God at the same time. It just won't work. What kind of choices are you making today? Second principle, to be holy is to be wholly focused on God. It's to be entirely focused 
on God. Luke chapter uh, 19, verse 5 says this, excuse me, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is, going to Jerusalem, he's going to die for us, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, some translations say that he resolutely focused and went toward Jerusalem, that he, that he was devoted to go uh, to Jerusalem. He's determined to go. An older version says he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to let anything else get in the way, and I'm so glad he didn't. Satan threw all kinds of temptations at our Lord. You know, people tried to get him distracted. His disciples tried to get him to, you know, avoid the cross. But Jesus, it says in Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him endured the suffering and pain of the cross because you and I, you and I, we were the trophy that he was going to win. He set, him aside, he set himself aside. He became holy, set aside to the purpose of redeeming you and me so that we could be set aside and be made acceptable to the Father. What does it mean to focus on God? Well, you may be wondering why I've got some golf clubs up here. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I am not much of a golfer. I was trying to think the other day, how many times have I golfed? I think I have maybe done it about six or seven times. In high school, I went out with some friends. We hacked a little bit around the golf course, didn't learn much, do much. And at my first church, I remember a couple of the elders uh, decided that every pastor needs to know how to play golf. So they took me out one day. And uh, it was nine holes that we were going to play. But by the time we got home, it took us the amount of time it takes to play 18 holes to play nine. And that's because I couldn't shoot. I could not hit the ball straight. I mean, it was, you know, it was slicing one way, towing in another way, going into the sand trap, going into the woods. I was creating divots along the golf course. They never asked me to go again. But then in Illinois, there was a dear friend by the name of Bill who decided that, you know, he was going to take a little slower and teach me how to golf. So he took me out to the driving range, right? And he said, let me, let me, see, your, let me see your swing. And so he, he kind of helped me think through my swing and then and then he told me, okay, take a couple of swings, all right? And I know all of you are worried, like, is he going to smash that screen? Uh, I hope not, all right? I got to move the ball a little bit here, okay? So he took me out. And he said, let me see a swing. So I, I got set, just like he told me to, all right? Came back, right? Took my swing and then went like this. And he said, that's one of your problems. <laughs> I had a lot of others. Yeah, that's one of your problems. You're not following the club to the ball. You're lifting your head before that club gets the ball. And when you do that, you're either missing the ball or it's creating all those weird angles, the slicing, you know, the skipping, the whatever it is. He said, watch the ball. Keep your focus on that ball when you swing through. And you know what? He was right. It made a big difference. Then let's talk about baseball for a moment, all right? Because I know a little bit more about baseball. Not a lot more, but a little bit more. And that is, there's a secret to being a good hitter when it comes to baseball or softball, all right? And the secret is this. The good hitters, they do this little thing that you hardly notice. A lot of times when they come up to bat, they will, first of all, focus, let's say, on the right field uh, post, way out right field. And then from there, they'll put the focus on the label of the bat. And they'll go back and forth several times. Then when they get up to the plate, 
They'll focus on the pitcher, and then they'll focus on their bat. They'll focus on the pitcher, then they'll focus on the bat. What are they doing? They're training their mind to go from far to near. Because that ball, like in baseball, it may be coming in at 90, 95 miles an hour. It's very difficult to pick that ball coming in so quickly. They've got to kind of guess what kind of pitch it's going to be so their bat's in the right place, but they still have to track the ball. So their focus is on the ball to the bat. The ball to the bat. Now, I know you didn't come or you're not listening to me to get some hints on how to be a better hitter or a better golfer. You certainly don't want that from me. But the point is this. The good athletes keep their eye on the ball, so to speak. Keep their eye on the finish line. Let me draw it out for you a moment. It's kind of like this. It's like what Jesus is saying is, here you are, all right? And he's saying, I want you to keep your eye, first of all, I want you to keep your eye out here on me, the future, right? You're going to be with me someday. I'm going to return someday. You're going to die someday. Keep your focus. You are seated with me in heavenly places. I've already got a place reserved for you. He says, all the while, while you're doing that, keep your eye on me here and near. Because I'm also with you here. Don't let your eyes get distracted. Don't focus on other things. There's this wonderful passage. Paul comes to Corinth, and listen to what he writes to the Corinthians. He says this. He says, For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who is crucified. In other words, I would keep my eyes on Christ. And Corinth, my goodness, it was like the Las Vegas of its day. I mean, it was anything goes. It was hedonistic. It was, you know, there was all kinds of religions and philosophies. I mean, it was distraction after distraction. And Paul says, I just kept my focus on Jesus. I just kept my focus on the gospel. I wouldn't go any other way. I wouldn't be swayed any other way. In our culture right now, it is so hard to keep your focus on Christ and the truth. Because there are all these distractions, all these distractions from politics, you know, to all the sexual uh, addiction issues that we have in our culture today and the, and, the, and the moral issues that are going on today and the violence that's going on today and the philosophies that are, that's going on today and on and on and on the list goes. You just got to keep your focus on Christ. If you want to live out the holy life that Christ has given to you, then keep your focus. Keep him in mind in the distance, right? So that you can keep your mind on him close by. Don't take your eyes off of Christ. Are your eyes on Christ today? Are you focused on Jesus? Is he your focus today? say, well, how do you do that? How do you you keep your eyes there? How do you keep focus? Well, listen to what Jesus said in John 17. As he was praying, he said, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Okay, keep that in mind. You have given me your name. He says, now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is the truth. So Jesus is saying, look, to stay focused, you got to keep your eyes, your nose, and the word of God. But then he also keeps talking about this whole concept of name. 
It's by their name I protected you. It's in, and it's by their name, by your name, that they will be holy. What does that mean to focus on the name of Jesus? Well, you know, when you think about a name of somebody, names of people have an effect on us, don't they? I mean, there are certain names that if I said them, right, politically, let's say, would cause some of you to rejoice and some of you to cringe. There are certain names of teams, if I mention them, will cause some of you to rejoice and some of you to boo. (laughs) There are names of people you know that cause you to feel happy and warm and other names that just cause you to shudder or maybe even get angry because that name represents that person, who they are and what they have said or what they've done or in their relationship to you. And based on who they are and how they have related to affects then how you feel and how you think about them. What are some of the names that bring joy to your heart? And what are some of the names that honestly bring fear and worry and concern to your heart? And what do you think about the name of God? How does that strike you? There's an interesting incident in... uh, Luke chapter 15, where Jesus is standing there, and it says in the very beginning that in the context that there were uh, notorious sinners around him. I mean, these folks were bad, okay? And they were known for their sins. And there were also the Pharisees. And it bothered the daylights of the Pharisees that Jesus would pay attention to these notorious sinners. The Pharisees had worked so hard to alienate the notorious sinners. And the way they did it is they, they made God seem angry to them. They made God seem distant to them. They made God seem uncaring toward them. And so God had no room for those notorious sinners. So when they thought of God, when they thought about the name of Yahweh, it struck fear into their lives. It, it made them feel distant. It made them feel like God was this cruel judge, that there was no hope for them. And so then Jesus tells a story. You know the story. He tells a story about a father with two sons. And you know the prodigal son who says to his father, I want my inheritance. And he gets his money, he goes off, and he lives a terrible life. He wastes all his money, runs out of money, runs out of friends. There's a famine. He has to feed the swine. He decides, I'm going to go back home. I'd rather be my dad's servant. I'll be treated better than to be in this situation which I'm in. And so he heads back home, and when his father sees him coming, his father runs to him with outstretched arms and swallows him up in love and compassion, which causes the son to repent. He's taken back in the family again. And everybody knew what Jesus meant by that. What he was saying to those notorious sinners is that your Abba loves you. And I am proof how much he loves you. I have come to die for you. You know, a lot of times when we think about holiness, we get this kind of dark picture of God, I think. At least that's how I grew up thinking about God's holiness. It's like I can't even come close. It's like trying to get near the sun. It'll burn me to death. And it would if it was not for Christ. But because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, you and I can draw close to him. We can call him Abba, Daddy. He loves you. He loves me. And when you know, when you know how much he loves you, it causes you to want to be holy. 
If you lack holiness in your life, it's because you just don't know how much God loves you. If you're not living it out in your life, it's because, it's because though you've accepted Christ, you don't really believe how much he loves you. And he loves you and he loves me so very much. So very much. Listen, let's look at one more principle. To be holy means to be wholly renovated by God. To be holy means to be wholly renovated by God. I hope you read uh, uh, the upcoming blogs and we'll talk a little bit more about this. But what does it mean to be renovated by God? Well, you know, on HGTV and some of these shows, they, they go in and they renovate houses. The Holy Spirit has come in to renovate your life and his construction job will be done when you stand before God someday. You're always being renovated. He's not downsizing you. He's actually knocking some walls out and getting rid of some things. He's building some new rooms. He's creating, as C.S. Lewis says, he's creating a palace big enough for his presence in your life and my life. Here's what I want you to get. This is what Peter said. Peter said, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you receive God's mercy. He renovates us from the inside out. Or listen to what uh, Paul writes here in this next passage in Ephesians. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and what? And chose us in Christ to be what? To be holy and without fault in his eyes. There's only one way you can be holy and without fault in God's eyes, and that is based on what Christ has done for you. And for me. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And listen, it gave him, Paul says, it gave him great, great pleasure. It gave him great pleasure. So let me draw a picture out for you. Here's what it's really looking like. You have God who sends his son, Jesus, who makes the choice to come and to die for us on the cross, who then chooses to place into our lives his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And what Paul and Peter and what Jesus are wanting us to do is simply begin to live out our lives in the power of the holiness, the spirit that he's given to us until he takes us home someday to heaven. See what he's done? He's made you holy. Now he's asking you to actualize by the help of the Holy Spirit and by the truth, the word of God, he's asking you to actualize the holiness that is yours. The Catholic priest uh, by the name of uh, Father John Cator, wrote a little poem, and I've broken the poem up because this is how I want to end. He summarizes the essence of what it means to be holy, and here it is. First of all, he says, holiness is not something that comes from doing good. 
we do good because we are holy. God has made us holy. Secondly, he says, holiness is not something we acquire by avoiding evil. We avoid evil because we are holy. Thirdly, holiness is not something that follows from prayer. We pray because we are holy. Number four, holiness is not something that blossoms when we are courageous. We are courageous because we are holy. Next, he says, holiness is not the result of character building. We build character because we are holy. Next, he says, holiness is not a gift we obtain after a lifetime of service. We give service because we are holy. And then he says this, our holiness is God is with us, Emmanuel. I just, I love how he puts that. Because he's taking all the ways that we so oftentimes think we have to behave or practice to become holy, to earn holiness. And he says, no, no, no. All those things are because God has already designated you holy by his grace, by the sacrifice of his son, by his spirit that he's placed into your life. Now, surrender surrender to that presence live out that presence make a choice to live out that presence keep your focus on christ and his truth let him renovate your life let's pray father thank you for loving us thank you for adopting us into your family thank you for making us holy god every one of us who has accepted christ as savior is a saint and our saintness is not based on our works or our goodness or our abilities or on some church deciding that we were good enough and we've been passed long enough to now call us a saint. All of us are saints, oh God. All of us are saints because of Christ and who he is and whose we are. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, don't miss next weekend as we wrap up our series with a message that I think you're going to find very compelling and very encouraging to you. God bless.